Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. This week, HBO began airing its new critically acclaimed series, Lovecraft Country. It's based on the novel by Matt Ruff, who also wrote the cult classic modernist fantasy novel Fool on the Hill, and co-created by Misha Green, the creator of the series Underground, and Jordan Peele of Key and Peele fame, who also directed two of the best and most insightful horror films in recent decades, Get Out and Us. Ruff's book explores racism in Jim Crow America, set against the foreboding doom of the horrors that lurk in the background of the work of author H.P. Lovecraft. Born in 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island, Lovecraft is one of America's most influential literary figures. Large swaths of the entire horror genre can be credited to him. He is in many ways to horror what Tolkien is to fantasy. He didn't invent it, but he set so many elements of the template in place that it's virtually impossible to not see his fingerprints somewhere in every work of horror produced to this day. But he was also a racist. He held to the view that white-skinned people were genetically superior, which was not an uncommon view for his time, but certainly not a unanimous one either. And Lovecraft's racism serves some part of the wider metaphor for Lovecraft country. But more than that, Lovecraft was a master of expressing the nightmarish existential dread that haunts the back of all of our minds, pulling it to the surface and forcing us to look at it. That sort of ever-present monster, relentless and inescapable, is powerfully deployed in Ruff's narrative and the show's aesthetic. This all got me thinking about Lovecraft's legacy, what he believed, what he was like, what we get wrong about him, and how we should deal with the racism issue. And so I reached out to the one person who knows best, his biographer, S.T. Joshi. Joshi has spent his life studying, researching, and writing about Lovecraft, and curating and editing collections of his stories. His exhaustive biography of Lovecraft, I Am Providence, is considered by many as the authoritative account of Lovecraft's life. Joshi spoke to me from Seattle, Washington, where he lives and works. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. So welcome to the show, um, and thank you for taking some time. I want to start with this. I know that you were born in India, um, but you encountered Lovecraft for the first time at the age of 13 in Indiana. So uh, when you were 13 years old in a, in a library, what was it that drove you, first of all, drove you to Lovecraft as a 13-year-old, and also then what resonated with you so much um, that you developed this sort of lifelong obsession. Well, I, I don't know if anybody can really explain that without you know doing a thorough psychoanalysis of me, but uh, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I got to this country and I was five years old, and so all my education's here. I'm, I'm an American, you know, for all practical purposes. I, my, my Indian culture has sort of uh, fallen away to some degree. I mean, I love the food. My mother's still a great cook at the age of 93, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, 
I became an American, you know, and had all American friends and things like this. Um, the funny thing is, though, that uh, as a youth, I mean, I mean, very young, you know, five, six, seven, eight, I didn't like to read. I just wanted to play, you know, football or baseball with my friends and, you know, and whatever. It was, it was fun. And school was easy. I mean, I never found it very challenging. But uh, at one point, my older sister said, you know, <laughs> you need to start reading books. And uh, I was very much under her, her influence. She's uh, done a lot for me. Uh, so she dragged me to the public library because our school library wasn't really all that good. Uh, uh, but the Muncie Public Library in Muncie, Indiana, at the time, was a really good library. It had a lot of stuff, old and new. Huh. Um, and, you know, by that time, we're talking about the age of 10, 11, 12, let's say, I was already starting to get into this kind of fiction. Uh, I was interested in mystery stories, a little bit of science fiction. Science fiction really never, never did it for me, but I read some. Fantasy, you know, Tolkien, that sort of thing. But then horror. That somehow really struck a chord in me, and I started reading Poe, and I started reading maybe even Ambrose Bierce at that early age, but I know I read these various anthologies, and then one day I found these three volumes of stories by H.P. Lovecraft. Now, I think the name did resonate with me. I think I had read an, a story of his in an anthology uh, a while back, so I said, all right, just but the name alone. Yeah, was, was kind of intriguing. Like, yeah. what, a, what a great name for a writer, <laughs> you know. Right. So I picked it up, and the funny thing is, I found it difficult, and Lovecraft is kind of difficult, you know. He's not easy reading. So I, after a while, I said, "Oh man, this is this make my brain hurt." Uh, so I put the book aside. Six months later, I came back and read a, another one of those three books, and I said, "Oh my god, this is fabulous!" I mean, it was just unbelievable. The, I I really got into the prose. I thought his, I still think Lovecraft is a great, great writer of prose. Um, people say he's over the top, but I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that just did it for me. And I, I wish I could explain why, but I think it's because literally there's nothing out there like Lovecraft. Certainly at that time, there wasn't uh, so different from, uh, you know, a lot of the conventional horror fiction that was going on. In fact, you know, this was at the early stage of the so-called horror boom, you know, with, with William Peter Blatty's Exorcist and the, some of the early novels of Stephen King. Right. Uh, you know, lots of horror films out there. but. Lovecraft did it for me way more than all these other people did. And I started getting interested in Lovecraft, the person, the man. Now, at that time, there was very little out there. You know, you really had to scramble around to find out anything, even the basic facts about Lovecraft. He was so obscure. But I managed to find a little bit. And then in 1975, uh, El Spray de Camp's big biography came out. And I said, wow, that's fabulous. You know, you obviously had way more uh, uh, information about Lovecraft than, than any other book at the time. It's severely flawed, but you know, I didn't know that at the time. I was only <laughs> 17 when I read it. Uh, I thought it was great. You know, it just gave me more information, you know. And, uh, and again, a lot of, a lot of the, his beliefs started resonating with me not the racism let's be honest <laughs> but i hope not anyway <laughs> we'll get to that like, you know, love for the past you know i like i don't i don't really like the present day i like to think of myself as being back in you know a different era yeah. uh, i like cats i mean maybe that's superficial but but maybe it isn't you know and i said this guy i just got to do more studying in him and, and i went from there let's talk about lovecraft the person a little bit then um because you have dedicated most of your work i mean you've written about a lot of different things but lovecraft mm -hmm. far and away i think is right uh, top of that sure. list absolutely you've curated a bunch of lovecraft story compendiums you've um written essays on lovecraft you you wrote an exhaustive biography of lovecraft the current 
I think it's gone through three different title changes. Do I have that right? The current version of it is I Am Providence. Well, it's in three different sizes, shall we say. The <laughs> right. unabridged version is I Am Providence. Right. <laughs> there was a shorter version. There was after The first one published was uh, maybe two-thirds that size called Lovecraft A Life. And then right. an even much, much shorter version published in England called A, a Dreamer and a Visionary. Um, that was just for marketing. I mean, you know, my original publisher just couldn't publish the whole thing, but mm-hmm. then I, later I found another publisher who could publish the whole thing. Uh, so whatever. But I kind of like the full version because it's, uh, it tells you, you know, I wouldn't say everything there is to know. In fact, I, there's more information always coming out, but it tells you quite a lot about Lovecraft. So he was inspired by Poe. Absolutely. And yeah. they have, they have a lot of, a lot of biographical similarities. Sure, sure. Rough childhoods, questionable relationship with parents. Um, that sort of thing. Did Do you think he would have written the same way without that upbringing? Oh, without question. I mean, the more I study Lovecraft, the more I see how his life really gets integrated into his work and even his his, his philosophy. I mean, he had a very deep philosophy of life. And so, um, you know, it all hangs together. Um, yeah, Lovecraft had a really hard childhood. I mean, his, his uh, uh, he was born into actually a fairly well-to-do family, but almost immediately after his birth, all kinds of bad things happened. His father uh, had to be institutionalized. And we now know, they didn't know it at the time, but we now know he had syphilis. He probably contracted it way earlier in life, uh, you know, way before he married. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he just spent the next five years in a hospital and basically rotted to death. That was, was horrible. His, his medical records are still around. and they're, they're dreadful because they didn't know how to treat syphilis at the time. So that was bad. That his mother was totally traumatized by that, as you can imagine, and she engaged in this weird sort of love-hate relationship with with his with her son, um, uh, both being overprotective in some ways, but also very emotionally distant, and that must have had a real, really bad effect on Lovecraft. Uh, and that went on till you know, literally until she died in 1921, where he was about 30 at the time, and only then did he finally start coming out of his shell. Uh, he was involved in this group called the Amateur Journalism Movement. It's, it's it's hard to explain, but it's a bunch of people getting together to write little little stories and essays. You know, they published basically it was it was a way of getting practicing printing. Uh, people had their own little printing presses and ran off little magazines like this just for fun. Um, uh, and eventually, he got published professionally in Weird Tales magazine, the pulp magazine, which only paid a penny a word, but uh, best he could do at the time. Uh, gained a lot more friends through correspondence. He wrote thousands and thousands of letters to people, and and well, we may get back to that, but uh, that's a lot of how he communicated with people because you know he was somewhat isolated, somewhat withdrawn. I don't call him a recluse anymore. People people say, oh, he's just an eccentric recluse. He actually got around a lot. Um, he spent a couple of years in New York uh, in a failed marriage uh, uh, for, that lasted two years. And he came back to Providence. So almost all his life was spent in Providence, but he traveled widely. He had a wide circle of acquaintances and friends and colleagues. Um, but his focus was writing. I mean, he says writing is the only thing that really means anything to me. And if I can't do that, then I might as well not exist. The letters have received more attention um, over the last several decades, where there's a separation between the horror stories and the letters, and uh, there also seems to be a, almost a different sort of approach to writing of the letters. And I know that some critics say his letters are wonderful um, and are better than even his, his horror, and that he wrote thousands of letters over the course of his lifetime. 
what do the letters expose about him as a person that we don't get from the sort of direness of the of the horror stories? The letters, and I'll tell you that he wrote. I mean, we don't know the full number of letters, of course, because they don't all survive. We have a pop, maybe about five thousand letters. That's a lot of letters, but even that's a fraction of what he wrote. That comes to a cumulative total of four and a half million words. Okay, it's a staggering amount of, of writing. You know, he was writing like twenty letters a day to people. You know, in his, his you know last two or three decades of his life. I mean, it's incredible. And he wrote these long, long letters. You know, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty pages. I mean, can you imagine? Um, uh, you know, what, what would you do when you get a letter like that? Like, you just <laughs> faint away. I mean, how could you possibly reply to that? But anyway, it was his way of communicating. But it really reveals the whole man. Uh, I mean, horror fiction, I mean, he wrote with very specific ideas in mind of how to write it. But in his letters, believe it or not, he's actually very open, very honest about himself, as as far as we can tell. You know, he's not this buttoned-up New Englander. He reveals his his heart and soul in these letters to certain individuals whom he trusts and, and, and his friends with. Uh, you learn a whole lot about Lovecraft, not just little details of his life. You, I mean, you know what, what kind of beans he liked to eat, what kind of cookies he liked, what, what kind of toothbrush he liked. I mean, things like that. Interesting, but, but kind of trivial. But he learned, you learn about his beliefs, you learn about his philosophy, you learn about his travels, you learn about, you know, you know, his interrelations with, with, with his family. And specifically, you learn about what he what he wanted to do as a writer. His what is called his aesthetic beliefs. His his what he what he tried to convey uh, in his literature, and that's that's very important in terms of interpreting his work. So I, I suspect that you came to the letters after the stories chronologically in your own life. Oh, absolutely. So when you read the letters, what did it did it illuminate anything about the stories? Did you start to see the stories in a different way yeah what happened was that Lovecraft was very unsuccessful in his time I mean, he got his stuff published in magazines you know in his lifetime couldn't get a book published of his work incredibly enough uh, I mean literally he had no single collection of his stories in his lifetime and it all came all this stuff came out posthumously through friends and whatever uh, but those friends also realized that these letters were very valuable and so his uh, uh, two two writers, um, August Sterlis, Donald Wandry, formed the publishing company Arkham House in Wisconsin to to publish really all of Lovecraft's work or as much as they could get of it. Uh, and they published a five five volume edition of selected letters between 1965 and 1976, <clears throat> and that was incredibly illuminating. In fact, in many ways, that edition spurred a, a, a whole new interest in Lovecraft and a whole more more depth of interest in Lovecraft. So yes, I certainly read the stories, you know, when I was 15, 16 or earlier. But then I actually had to borrow these this edition of collected letters from Interlibrary Loan because my my parents worked at, at Ball State University, uh, but that library didn't have the letters, that, that edition, so I had to borrow them from Indiana University or someplace. And they really were a revelation. I mean as I say, they tell you so much about, you know, what, what was Lovecraft reading at the time? You know, what, what was he, what, where was he going at the time? All this information, you know, reflects back on the stories he wrote. Can you give one example that sticks out to you? Oh, well, for example, um, there's a story. Okay, well, let's, let's take the story, The Whisper in Darkness, a great, great story about this weird things going on in, in rural Vermont, written in <laughs> 1930. Yeah. That is based on two or three different trips he took to Vermont 
1927 and 28 mostly. Mm-hmm. And you can find, you know, he met a couple of, you know, couple colleagues that were there. He stayed overnight a couple nights. Um, actually, it was <laughs> this these this gathering that that of, of literary folk that that happened there was actually written up in the local newspaper, and we have that that uh, piece. Um, but you can tell that a lot of the description of of that Vermont scenery is taken directly from uh, you know his travels to that period because he wrote an essay called Vermont: A First Impression uh, a couple of years before writing that story, and whole passages of that story of that essay get worked into the story, uh, but changed around to make it a little more sinister and, and sort of evil. Um, but, you know, Rhode Island, I mean, Vermont really, really touched a core in Lovecraft, not just because it's a beautiful state, but it, because he felt it was kind of a, a haven of antiquity. It was still, people still lived in the old ways, you know, back in the, you know, from, from the 18th, 19th century. And, and that's something that Lovecraft really liked. So Lovecraft isn't alone in being a genius who is not appreciated in his time or even a you know commercial failure in his time right he he joins the ranks of you know van gogh and yeah. but you know I, I i can see a lot of different possible reasons as to why um possibly his philosophy didn't jive with the time possibly uh, the stories were just too progressively strange for the time possibly he just made enemies with the wrong people what's your sense of why lovecraft a was a failure but then b uh ultimately became a a posthumous success yeah that's that's complicated but but in some ways it's it's fairly straightforward (laughs) i believe lovecraft's fiction really was very much ahead of his time uh, especially ahead of the kind of stuff that appearing in these pulp magazines like Weird Tales, Astounding Stories, whatnot. This is where all the genres were born, by the way, in the 20s and 30s. Uh, weird fiction, science fiction, romance, um, uh, you know, fantasy, all these genres, crime fiction with, with Black Mask and other magazines like that. But a lot of these magazines were very formulaic. They wanted certain types of stories that fit a certain pattern, and Lovecraft just couldn't write that way it's amazing that somebody some of his stuff got published at all and in fact some of his best work didn't get published it was rejected mm. and Lovecraft took that really hard he was he was not a professional writer in in, in any meaningful sense he didn't want to be uh, he actually said oh you know I write only to please myself and a few other of my friends I, I write for self-expression that was the phrase he used over and over again uh, you know it's it's t- express what he wanted to express uh you know uh, the, these ideas and, and beliefs and, and and feelings that were running through his mind if the story got published well fine if it didn't well that's fine too now that's a convenient attitude to have if you have money but unfortunately Lovecraft didn't have money so he was dwelling in in uh, repeated you know increasing poverty over the years so it didn't really have very much other source of income but he came close to getting published in in books in fact Two different publishers, major publishers, G.P. Putnam Sons and Alfred A. Knopf, in the 30s, almost purchased, you know, a volume of stories. But I think Lovecraft also was a very bad salesman of his own work. I mean, he just, he didn't like to put himself forward like that and, and praise himself and say, oh, this is a great story, because he felt that was ungentlemanly. You know, he adhered to that old-fashioned sta- uh, ideal of the, the the gentleman. You don't promote yourself. You are humble and, and, and uh, just uh, let the work speak for itself. 
And so he didn't put himself across very well. And, and there were other, you know, specific reasons why these story, these projects were rejected. But, uh, you know, it was right. close, but no cigar. As for why he then took off later, I think it's these these letters that, that established such, you know, such a, a bond between him and his various colleagues. They, all of them, you know, he died early. You know, he died of uh, only when he was not even 47. Uh, and everybody was astonished because he kept his illness, you know, secret from almost everybody. And, and everyone, you know, all his friends said, oh, my God, we, we can't let this stuff just disappear in these crumbling pulp magazines. we got to save his work somehow. And they all pitched in. And, and you know, these two writers, as I say, founded a publishing company for the sole reason uh, uh, to publish Lovecraft. I mean, I don't think it's <laughs> I don't think that's ever happened before in the history of literature that one publishing company is established just to publish one writer. Right. Uh, I mean, they went on to publish other writers, too, but that was the initial foundation. Uh, and so these personal ties that he established, sometimes only through correspondence, held him in good stead. And then, you know, as his work got published more and more, people began to understand how revolutionary it was and, and how great it was. It's just entertaining reading, all apart from its, uh, you know, literary brilliance. It feels like the 60s and 70s were sort of the time when Lovecraft entered into maybe the mainstream or, or started getting mainstream awareness um is, is that am i right about that no absolutely yeah i mean you know he'd been published in paperback you know to some degree in the 40s and 50s but not much uh horror fiction was actually going through a kind of some doldrums in the 50s it really there wasn't actually very much horror fiction being written a lot of it was either written in in the vein of science fiction or or sort of crime suspense fiction like robert block's psycho uh, Block, by the way, was a friend of Lovecraft's uh, early on in, in his in his youth, uh, but the '60s, yeah, things started to open up, and then uh, these paperback editions became more and more popular. I think, in some ways, Lovecraft started to be thought of as almost a counter countercultural figure. You know, he was mm-hmm. kind of wild stuff going on there. You know, uh, you know, lurid and uh, you know, just just nothing like your standard haunted house stories or ghost stories. It was just totally wild. Uh, and and the, the the paperback covers at the time were you know totally off the wall. They were they were a lot of fun, um, and so I remember that era. That's exactly when I started getting into Lovecraft, and you know he fit in with people like Camus and Nietzsche and uh, other writers who were you know popular then amongst the the hippies and the uh, countercultural people, and then and then he took off. So the world was finally ready for his his work. Mm. One yeah. of the things that Lovecraft is probably most famous for in terms of his literary legacy um, is something that, uh, you know, it's often pointed out he didn't actually come up with, which is the Cthulhu mythos. That's something that his, that the people he influenced and his circle um, developed and, and used as sort of inspiration. For anybody who is unfamiliar, can you give a brief rundown as to what Cthulhu is and what the, the mythos is and... Ah, well, that's a that's a tall order, but <laughs> fundamentally, around well, in nineteen in nineteen twenty six, Lafayette just came back from New York. These two horrible years in New York, back to Providence. He was home again. He loved it. You know, I'm sorry to say, his his he basically deserted his wife. Let's be blunt about it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> that was doomed to failure anyway. Uh, anyway, so all of a sudden there was this tremendous creative burst, and he wrote a whole bunch of stories. You know, within the next year and a half or so, and one of the stories he wrote was now. I pronounce it Klulu. It's hard to pronounce because Lovecraft gives differing pronunciations in various <laughs> letters, but I think it's Klulu. But no matter who cares, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, it was not meant to be pr- pronounced by human vocal cords anyway, as Lovecraft says. Right. So you can pronounce right. it any way you want. But 
the basic theme or, or underlying idea of this uh, mythos is that over the course of history, human history, uh, various entities from outer space have, have come to the you know, to the Earth and you know interacted you know usually in a horrible way with human beings. Now um, we human beings have thought of, have thought of them as gods. We call Clulu a god. We call Yog Sothoth a god because they're so incredibly powerful and huge and and intimidating that. Uh, we human beings don't know of any other way to express our understanding of them except by, uh, you know, uh, attributing them uh, uh, a godlike status. And yet, we have to remember, Lovecraft was an atheist. I think that's actually the most important yeah. thing you can remember about Lovecraft. He was an atheist. What does that mean? He was saying, oh, yeah, he was saying that these entities. I mean, they're meant to be interpreted symbolically anyway. Lovecraft obviously didn't believe in the literal reality of Tulu, but they are symbols for all that we don't know uh, in, 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 out there in the universe. And their mere existence makes us utterly insignificant. Human beings, all Earth life is of no consequence in the vast cosmos. We, we simply don't matter. We are fundamentally alone in the universe. Um, and that's the basic message of the mythos, uh, even though it's expressed in this in, in this uh, you know cosmogony of so-called gods. Is there any optimism to that philosophy? Because it strikes me as like a lot of people sort of embrace Lovecraft's philosophy, and it has endured, but it seems almost self-destructively bleak. And at the same time, there's this element to it of the the vastness of the imagination. I mean, he's coming up with all this stuff, and he knows he is. He doesn't believe in these beings, as you say. And so he obviously has a sense of the capacity of the, of the human imagination. Um, but at the same time, his whole imagination leads us to a place where everything is bleak and meaningless. What <laughs> what what am I missing? <laughs> What's, what is the core of this? That... No, 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 you're quite right about that. And it, it's actually, to, I have to confess, I, I wake up every day totally dumbfounded that Lovecraft is as popular as he is because his view of the world really is quite bleak. Now, let's yeah. let's let, there are two different things going on here. There's the vision presented in his fiction, which is deliberately meant to be bleak because that's what horror fiction is. It's not supposed to be cheerful. <laughs> I mean. Uh, there's the vision in his letters or, or in his personal life. What Lovecraft was saying in his life was, yes, he did believe that the human race was ultimately insignificant in the universe. And, and quite frankly, it is. I mean, yeah. unless you believe in a, in, a, in a benevolent God, I mean, you have to believe that we simply don't matter. You know, the, the, the whole existence of the human race, you know, over, you know, however many millions of years, is a, is a is a fraction of a second in cosmic time. It, 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 it's of no consequence. But for Lovecraft, he admitted that truth as he as he saw it, but he counteracted it with you know various other things. You know that's why he looked to the past. That's why he. I mean, he took a lot of interest in life. I mean, he wasn't you know a, a depressed person at all, except maybe limited limited times when when he was in New York, he was getting seriously depressed because he just it was it was a very bad time for him. But uh, on the whole, he was actually a fairly cheerful person. You you can see that in the various uh, memoirs that, that other people wrote about him. You know, Lovecraft was actually uh, I wouldn't say life of the party exactly, but you know he was not uh, gloom and doom at all. He took a lot of interest in life. He, as I say, he traveled wide 
widely and he liked to, you know, go to these uh, other places all up and down the East Coast. And, uh, you know, he, he, he derived a, a good deal of pleasure from life because he was able to come up with these uh, other things to, to shield himself from the, from the realization uh, of our insignificance. But he did realize that that is, that is how things are. And, and he just said, we got to face it. Uh, or else that's it you know we, we we can't delude ourselves into believing that that uh, you know we we matter to anybody so it's sort of existentialism with space monsters right i mean like, <laughs> it's sort of what it boils down to oh, right? yeah yeah oh, and he may have influenced he may have influenced this existentialist but it's possible you know we don't know exactly but uh, you know Lovecraft was translated into french in 19 in the 50s so he could have you know they could have come upon him oh, that's interesting on him in english i mean i just don't know but he actually did influence the surrealists uh, people like andre breton actually explicitly uh, mentioned lovecraft from time to time so uh, who knows so can you talk a little bit about how Lovecraft's theology, or, or a theology, if you want to put it that way, and um, your own view of the universe, um, how that jives? Was that part of, even when you were 13 years old, was that part of what drove you to Lovecraft? Did you have this sort of atheistic sense growing up? Yeah, what happened was, when we came over to this country from India, my father, who was, he called himself a secularist. I mean, that's just means let's keep religion out of public life basically you know religion is a private matter yeah uh my mother is actually quite devout to this day she is devout i mean she's not fully uh a hindu but pretty much still hindu you know believes in in reincarnation and that sort of thing um but my father said you know uh, he did not want myself and my two sisters to be indoctrinated into any religion not even hinduism Mm -hmm. nothing he said, let them decide on their own when they're ready for it, intellectually and emotionally, if they want to believe in a religion or if they don't want to believe in a religion. I And I thank my stars that he did that because I, I know the bad effects of religious indoctrination. I mean, it's, it's, it's very hard to overcome that kind of thing uh, later on in life. So I wouldn't say I grew up atheist, but maybe I did. I mean, I grew up non-religious, let's say that much. Mm-hmm. And so when I found Lovecraft, and especially these letters, where he makes a lot of really cogent arguments in support of atheism, I said, yeah, this, this makes a lot of sense to me. And then I went on to read Nietzsche and Bertrand Russell and you know some of the other great atheists of, of the 20th century and, and 19th century, and I said, yeah, this, this is it. I mean, that, and then I've gone on to compile books about atheism. Uh, that's one of, the, one of my side, side questions, as it were. Yeah. So yeah, Lovecraft had a big influence on my becoming an atheist. Um, let's talk about the other side of Lovecraft, the one that right now um is kind of in the in the public eye um so hbo is about to this month begin airing lovecraft country which is a adaptation of matt ruff's um novel that weaves in elements of lovecraftian mythos with um american the, the history of american racism uh, Jim Crow, um, etc. Uh, so a couple of things. Have you talked to Matt Ruff? Have you, has he ever contacted you um, as a source? Oddly enough, I believe Matt Ruff lives in Seattle or the Seattle area, but I am not acquainted with him. No, I, I read his book. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I, let me be honest. I thought, I thought that the title was a little false advertising because there's not actually all that much Lovecraft right. content in the book. I mean, it sort of starts out that way and maybe a little bit uh, elsewhere, but... Um... So it seems that I mean, one of the reasons that... Um, I don't want to speak for him, but one of the reasons that Ruff 
sort of chose that that lens is because notoriously like Lovecraft is one of those people who you have to take on the racism element of, of Lovecraft, who was explicitly racist in, to, in some respects um, and and not so much in other respects. Uh, I know that's something that you have tackled head on. I know it's something that you have a fairly vocal um, opinion about. So let's 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 start with the racism itself. Um, in what ways was Lovecraft a legitimate racist, and and where is that coming from? What, what, where does that animosity stem from? Lovecraft was indeed convinced that uh, you know African Americans were biologically inferior to to Caucasians. Uh, he also exhibited prejudice against Jews, but that was more of a cultural thing. He obviously didn't believe Jews were biologically inferior. In fact, in one instance, he said they're, they're biologically superior <laughs> to to Caucasians. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and but and and uh, in terms of immigrants, foreigners, as he called them, uh, you know, he he preferred that they weren't be around. And of course, those two years that he spent in New York was uh, were were horrible, precisely because he was now engulfed in this, uh, you know polyglot metropolis with uh, all kinds of different people, uh, you know, brushing shoulders with him. Let me start by saying that it is quite clear that these attitudes were uh, uh, inculcated in Lovecraft at a very early age. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is some evidence. It's, we, don't, we don't know much about Lovecraft's father or even his mother in terms of her beliefs or anything or, or the, the family there. But it becomes pretty clear to me that these, these, these views were, were uh, you know, of very early origin in Lovecraft. You have to remember that growing up in this time, 1890s, you know, early, early 20th century, in New England, you know, being part of the, essentially, at least they consider themselves part of the sort of the aristocracy of New England, you know, the wasp aristocracy. Yeah. Um, that was a, it was a very conservative part of the country. It obviously isn't now. That only changed with, with FDR and, and the New Deal. But uh, uh, at this time, New England was the most conservative part of, of America. Uh, and you also have to remember that it was exactly at this time, around 1890, and, and continuing on for the next 30 years, that there was a tremendous influx of immigrants. Something like 15 million immigrants came to this country uh, in those 30 years, at a time when the U.S. total population, aside from them, was only about 100, 100 million people. Uh, we're talking about a huge you know, uh, proportion of people coming in. And they were coming in from not just from, shall we say, the... the uh, uh, the white parts of, of Europe, you know, Germany, uh, England, Ireland, they were coming from Southern, Southern uh, uh, Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, Asia, Latin America, wherever. So they were very, they're more superficially different. You know, they looked different. They, their culture was different. Uh, and this really upset a lot of these so-called, you know, old Americans that, that Lovecraft took himself to be, you know, because they felt they were changing the whole civilization. Um and there's another whole element that we don't like to face, and that is that many scientists and anthropologists from the later 19th and even into the 20th century were actually quite convinced that there were 
you know, uh, degrees of difference, you know, intellectually, culturally, in other ways, uh, between the various races of mankind. I mean, there are whole books published on the subject, many, many books published on the subject. And Lovecraft, you know, who was a believer in science, he, he learned science at a very early age, things like chemistry, biology, astronomy. He was a great uh, uh, fan of science uh, throughout his life, uh, read these books and, you know, you know, if the scientists are saying that's what it is, then that's what it is. Uh, it took a long time for these bogus, uh, racist uh, uh, scientific views to be overthrown. It only really started in the 1920s and didn't really finish until well after Lovecraft's death. So mm. my take is that it's it was very hard for Lovecraft. It would have been very hard for Lovecraft not to have adopted these views because they were so prevalent. I mean, you, you can't believe how prevalent they were. It takes a real... Uh, 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 leap of the imagination to throw yourself back into that time. You sim- we simply don't know what it was like. You really have to read up on the history. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, because of all these influx of immigrants, there were three major immigration restriction bills passed around that time, 1917, 1921, and the most severe was 1924, these were passed by enormous majorities in Congress. I mean, they all supported the, the, these these measures to restrict uh, immigration from these uh, undesirable parts of the world. And those laws stayed in effect for 40 years. Uh, they were not overturned until 1965. My mother, in fact, my family, we were lucky to get into this country uh, because we were sponsored by our University of Illinois. Uh, otherwise, we might not have met the, the very strict criteria uh, that, that you know, that were still uh, in effect in, uh, in these laws. Do you get the sense then that I, I, and as someone who knows Lovecraft as well as anybody who didn't live at the same time uh, as Lovecraft did, mm. but of anybody alive, you probably know Lovecraft better than most. Do you get the sense that had he lived beyond the age of 47, had he um, seen the, let's see, the 19, you know, 40s, 50s, whatever, um, that his views, based on what you know about him, that his views would have evolved um, along with society? Oh, I think so. Uh, in fact, a lot of what, one of the things that, that gets me about uh, the current take on Lovecraft is people don't realize that in other ways, Lovecraft was radically evolving in many of his uh, uh, political views and, and, and other views as well. Around 1930, no accident, he became what he called a socialist. Mm. I mean, he was very politically conservative early on, but by, by 1930, he, he declared himself to be a socialist. What, what happened then? Something called the stock market crash uh, the <laughs> year before. Uh, Lovecraft began to recognize, you know, capitalism isn't working. You know, the, the, we, we got to do something totally different. He became a very ardent supporter of FDR, wanted to go much farther beyond what FDR was doing. Um, he, he would have been a Bernie Sanders supporter today, I suspect. Right. Um, his race, racial views didn't didn't um, evolve quite as much. They were starting to evolve, I think. For example, one of his friends uh, said that in 1936, just a year before he died, a neighbor of his went back to Germany, apparently to live permanently. I think she was, I don't know if she was a German ancestry or whatever. She went there to live, but came back in a few months. Uh, you know, because of this horrible stuff that was going on under Hitler and, and, and the treatment of Jews and the others. And Lovecraft heard about this and was simply appalled. I mean, you know, I I can't emphasize enough. Lovecraft was a fundamentally decent person. Mm. He never, you know, spoke about 
uh, race in person to anybody, it would appear, except maybe his wife and his family. All his cor- you know, friends and correspondents, people who met him on a daily basis, say this subject never came up. It, it, you know, and Lovecraft, being the gentleman that he was, whenever he met uh, people of another race, which didn't happen all that often, but it happened sometimes, he was unfailingly courteous. Uh, he helped a lot of his Jewish friends and other other friends to get ahead in in their writing. So the point is that, um, yes, I mean, who could not possibly have been influenced by by learning of the Holocaust? Yeah, any decent person. Would have would have been you know totally revolted and Lovecraft was a decent person and and I think his views would have changed at that time and later. So on the other kind of side of that spectrum, then with a story like Lovecraft Country, um, as loosely as it does, you know, use Lovecraft's images and ideas to speak about race in America and that sort of thing. Is it a good analogy? Do you think that there's something to be said? Like, are there are there elements of the the strange world we find ourselves in today, for instance, <laughs> where the 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 Lovecraftian sort of mythic view of the world could could be a useful metaphor to morally clarify what's going on around us in some way? Well, I think the fundamental message of Lovecraft in his fiction is we're, we're, we're very fragile. Yeah. We're a very fragile race. We are beset by these, you know, I mean, these entities, of course, are, are fictitious, but, you know, the, the, they're symbols for all the, the, the dangers out there that face us as a species. In some ways, Lovecraft was an early environmentalist. He didn't want, you know, old buildings to come down. He didn't want, uh, you know, the, the, the forests and, and things like that to, to give way to development. He hated that kind of... Uh, urban sprawl um but he recognized that you know uh, human beings uh, 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 are in trouble <laughs> you know uh, he actually didn't have much hope for civilization he felt that that through industrialization and technology you know we were becoming a different species and it's not a species that he liked that's why he he yearned for the past uh, so that kind of thing resonates even more with us now with mm. facing you know global warming and that sort of thing uh i think that's a part of the reason at least why lovecraft uh you know uh, really speaks to people nowadays because he he tells of that fragility that we're all facing right. uh that in an instant we could be wiped out and and that that's the end of us who do you think today is creating the best enduring horror that that will live beyond just sort of the modern the modern period well there's there's one writer who's who stands out head and shoulders above anybody else and he doesn't get the 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 reputation or the fame uh that others do but it's the british writer ramsey campbell this guy has been writing for more than 50 years he started writing as a teenager Uh, got his first book published when he was 18 Uh, started out writing uh Lovecraftian kind of stories, pastiches of Lovecraft. They were not very good, but very soon thereafter, he evolved into writing this really, really uh, chilling uh, kind of urban horror stories. Um, they are masterful. I mean, he and he's written a huge amount of stuff. So Ramsey Campbell, and he still respects Lovecraft. He still admires Lovecraft and, and sort of thanks Lovecraft for, for making him the kind of writer that he is. Uh, in the U.S., uh, there's a there's a writer named Caitlin Kiernan who is also much influenced by Lovecraft, but also very much a writer in her own right. She actually lived in Providence for a good many years, um, not because of Lovecraft. She just happened to, <laughs> happened to go there. But uh, um, she is 
she is incredibly powerful and and again there's some work of hers that that certainly echoes lovecraft but others is it's all it's all her stuff uh she you know she writes some horror fiction she writes science fiction she writes fantasy but she she is a beautiful beautiful writer so i'm gonna end it with this you may be the only person in history who's turned down yale and harvard to go to brown <laughs> it was is that entirely because of providence <laughs> it was okay let me let me, let me clarify <laughs> i did not I, I got put on harvard's waiting list as an undergraduate and so i said i'm sorry harvard i'm not gonna wait for you okay fair enough i did get accepted to yale as an undergraduate and and as a graduate student and i returned them down twice <laughs> um but yes, I went to Brown because of Lovecraft. Because remember, that biography of, of the camps came out in 75 when I was 17, uh, just a few months before I was applying to college. And I think that's it was from that book that I read that all these, you know, the, the Brown University Library has all these manuscripts and papers about Lovecraft and said, okay, I got to go there. That's it. You know, and I, I got in luckily and I spent six years there, bachelor's and master's. And I, every moment that I wasn't in class, or you know, doing homework or whatever. I was at the library, you know, pouring through these manuscripts. Huh. I mean, I had no social life to speak of. You know? <laughs> uh, I mean, I had a couple of friends who were other Lovecraftian friends, and we got together every so often. But basically, uh, I knew nobody else. <laughs> that was it. Uh, but it it changed my life, I tell you. And I still go back to the well. Like you can't go back now because of the of the COVID. But uh, yeah. I'm still in touch with the librarians there. I still help them out. I still uh, you know try to do stuff for them as they do stuff for me. Uh, we're still on this campaign of publishing the complete Lovecraft letters. It's going to be 25, maybe 26 volumes. Uh, we've gotten about 15 volumes out already, and the other ones are, are in, in progress. And I'll tell you, you know, there's good and bad stuff in those letters, but mostly I think it's just great stuff. They just reveal what, what, what an incredible human being Lovecraft was. I mean, you may hate him, you may love him, but, you know, he was, he was definitely one of a kind. S.D. Joshi, this has been really, really fascinating, and thank you so much for taking some time. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here.